like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on juvenile arthritis and rheumatoid arthritis awareness. I'm your host, Dr. Donnelly Snipes. Now you might be thinking, why are we talking about arthritis? Well, because a lot of our clients, whether they have juvenile arthritis or they're adults and they have rheumatoid arthritis, do struggle with this. And arthritis can be an extraordinarily painful and debilitating debilitating condition, which we know is likely to have an effect on their mental health as well as the rest of their physical health if the appropriate mitigation steps aren't put in place. So that's really what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about what it is, identify the prevalence of juvenile arthritis and rheumatoid arthritis, explore the relationship of juvenile arthritis and rheumatoid arthritis and affiliated medications to mental health. The good news is that most of those medications don't have a significant negative mental health impact. So woohoo there. Um, and we're going to identify interventions to assist people with juvenile arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis achieve their highest quality of life. And that's really what we want to do. We're not going to be able to make this go away for a lot of people. Well, for anybody, but what we can do is to help them learn how to live their highest quality of life. Juvenile uh, idiopathic arthritis and rheumatoid arthritis are basically or are both considered autoimmune disorders. When we talk about autoimmune disorders in childhood, interestingly, not as many occur as you would think. Autoimmune disorders really don't show up as much until people get into adulthood. However, there are a few. Juvenile arthritis affects about one in 1,000 children. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot when you think one in 1,000, but if you think, you know, at an elementary school, how many kids are there? I know in my high school, there were like 2,500 people. So the chances are there were at least two or three people there who had juvenile arthritis. So the numbers are actually there. And we want to also reflect upon the fact that someone who has juvenile arthritis, who has these pain conditions and they don't have the resources or the skills or the tools to cope with them may be more likely to be in our office. So the number of people with juvenile arthritis who present in clinic is probably significantly higher than one in 1000. Although there is some good news that with appropriate mitigation with appropriate services, the mental health outlook for people with juvenile idiopathic arthritis really isn't that bad. It, they're right on par with a lot of other children and adolescents out there. Another type of autoimmune disorder is type one or juvenile onset diabetes, which affects one to two out of every 400 children. Again, I want you to think about, have you ever known somebody with juvenile onset diabetes? I know I have. And, you know, thinking about, you know, that is twice as common as juvenile arthritis, but it kind of puts it in to perspective that it's really, you know, these issues, even though the numbers sound like they're not going to be that prevalent, we really do run into youth who are experiencing some long-term or some chronic conditions. Celiac disease in juveniles is actually estimated to impact one to three percent of the population. So that's one to three out of every 100. Those are your three most 
prominent um, or most common autoimmune issues in children. Obviously, today we're just talking about arthritis, but I kind of wanted to paint a bigger picture for you. Juvenile arthritis or pediatric rheumatic disease is an umbrella term to describe a set of inflammatory, usually autoimmune diseases that impact nearly 300,000 children under the age of 16. Wow. So 300,000 children. That puts it in even bigger of a perspective. Some children with juvenile idiopathic arthritis, or JIA, have their disease go into permanent remission or only have one or two flare-ups. That's important to know, especially when the initial diagnosis is made, to help the parents understand that for some children who have this diagnosis, juvenile, I'm just going to say juvenile arthritis, because uh, juvenile idiopathic arthritis is a, is a mouthful to say each time. So children with juvenile arthritis may go into permanent remission, or they may only have one or two flare-ups. And it's important to recognize that. This is not something they're necessarily going to live with every single day of the year, every single year of their lives. That gives a lot of hope. That helps parents understand that when there is a flare-up, okay, this is temporary. Let's look at what caused it and what we can do to help the child, you know, cope with it and be as happy and, you know, functional as possible during this flare-up period. There's a lot of empowerment and hope that comes from recognizing that it is possible to avoid some triggers. It is possible to do things that can help mitigate the pain and recognize that it, this rarely is a every single day of the year, every year of your life sort of condition. Now, that's not true with rheumatoid arthritis. Rheumatoid arthritis tends to be more prominent, more problematic, more symptomatic, more days of the year than the juvenile arthritis. Uh, so we'll kind of talk about that in a minute. But Focus on the fact that when a child is diagnosed with juvenile arthritis, we want to make sure we give the parents all the information that there is hope, there are things they can do. Unfortunately, more than 90% of patients with childhood uh, rheumatoid factor positive arthritis and more than half with rheumatoid factor negative polyarthritis were diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis as adults. So there is a chance, kind of a good chance, that somebody who is diagnosed with juvenile arthritis may develop rheumatoid arthritis as adults. It's not a guaranteed, but there is a chance. Okay, you know, we can't guess, we can't know what's going to happen. So what we can do is help people live their highest quality of life and learn how to avoid triggers and prevent or mitigate flare-ups as much as possible. Another thing that's helpful to know and to communicate to parents is that juvenile arthritis, to the best of their knowledge right now, is not directly inherited. Some pa parents may feel guilty if they think that they caused their child um, to have this condition by their genetics. Now, there are some things that can happen that are associated with later development, but we'll talk about those. But it is helpful to let them know that and also to educate the patient. So when the patient decides that they are, you know, grown-ups and they want to have children, to let them know that there is, right now, we don't know that it is directly genetically transmitted. So they're not guaranteed. 
of having a child that also has juvenile arthritis. What are we talking about when we talk about juvenile arthritis? Systemic arthritis, which is the rarest form, is also called Stills disease and usually starts between ages 5 and 10 and can affect many systems of the body, not just the joints. It is characterized by high fever and a rash on the trunk, arms, and legs. Internal organs such as the heart, liver, spleen, and lymph nodes um, are also often involved. So this is a systemic autoimmune problem that, you know, can be very challenging. Like I said, that's the rarest form. Polyarthritis um, and oligoarthritis involves joints and sometimes inflammation of the middle layer of the eye, which is kind of odd that that belongs down here and not up with systemic arthritis, but it is what it is. Uh, Polyarthritis means more than five joints are involved, and oligoarthritis means less than five joints are involved. You know, we're, we're really splitting hairs here. It's what we want to recognize is most of the children with juvenile arthritis are going to have pain in one or more of their joints, and sometimes they're going to have eye problems. Rheumatoid arthritis isn't diagnosed until adulthood. And like I said, not everybody who has juvenile arthritis is going to go on to develop rheumatoid arthritis as an adult. That's important to know. It is an autoimmune and inflammatory disease that occurs in adults and can lead to long-lasting or chronic pain, unsteadiness, lack of balance, and deformity or misshapenness. A lot of people who have rheumatoid arthritis in their hands, for example, their hands become kind of kinked because their joints are swollen and there's so much tissue damage. Symptoms of juvenile arthritis as well as rheumatoid arthritis. Joints become red or swollen and may feel stiff, painful, tender, and warm, especially in the morning. In young children, you, the parents may see that the child is limping more in the morning or is favoring one side or is not wanting to do things as much in the morning. They may not actually articulate that they are in pain, or they may. They may be exceptionally cranky when, they're in the mo- when they get up in the morning, and it's not just because they're not morning kids. Um, they may be especially cranky, and that goes away as the day goes on. They've found, and we'll talk about this with, ex- with interventions and exercise, that movement often helps keep those joints sort of lubricated. So it makes sense that when they've been sleeping all night long and still, those joints will stiffen up. And as they wake up in the morning and they start moving around, the joints will become a little bit less painful. Another symptom is eye dryness, pain, redness, and sensitivity to light, and even trouble seeing properly caused by chronic eye inflammation, and sometimes even have floaties. You know, if if you've ever had high blood pressure, um, you may have seen floaties. It looks like these little black spots that are floating around in your field of vision, kind of like little gnats. Well, this may plague people who have juvenile or rheumatoid arthritis. It's important to recognize this. Think about how having eye pain, having sensitivity to light can be disruptive and problematic for a child sitting in a classroom trying to focus on a school book or a blackboard. We do need to recognize that. And if the child is having symptoms of uvitis, that they are given appropriate, reasonable accommodation. And you can work with the school in order to identify what those may be for that child at that point in time. Some children develop a scaly red rash. Um, The 
that looks like that is psoriasis, uh, light spotted pink rash, which indicates systemic arthritis, a butterfly shaped rash across the bridge of the nose and the cheeks, which is possibly indicative of another condition called lupus, or thickened, hardened patches of skin um, that is indicative of scleroderma. So you have juvenile arthritis that's associated with several other autoimmune issues. You can have them together. Some people with juvenile and or rheumatoid arthritis may have weight loss uh, because they don't feel like eating. It can also affect their metabolism some. Some, on the other hand, may show some weight gain because due to the pain, they're not moving as much and they may be eating. But weight loss is one of the noted symptoms. Fatigue is a huge issue, and this is one that we're going to really talk about um, addressing with people because the fatigue can come because they're not sleeping well because of the pain. The fatigue can come because they are struggling with pain during the day, and it also is just a symptom of a lot of autoimmune issues, which can bring on irritability. We can see... I know when I'm in pain, I'm irritable. Uh, when I'm stiff, I'm irritable. Uh, and when I'm tired, I'm irritable. So if you think about how you react yourself, if you had these symptoms, what your mood might be like, you can understand where it might be coming from. So we're also going to address some of those things. So let's talk about triggers. You know, we're not medical doctors. We're not going to be prescribing anything, but it is important if you work with children to be on the lookout. If you've got a child who's presenting for depressive symptoms or anxiety symptoms, who's exhibiting irritability and fatigue and maybe even weight loss, you know, you do want to think, you know, is there a possibility that there may be some autoimmune something going on here and ask about sore joints, ask about problems uh, with vision or pain in their eyes. Those are two really important things to ask about. You know, even if children are just, just, I say, having pain in their eyes because they need glasses, they can't focus on the board. There have been repeated studies that have shown that if children start struggling in school, it takes a toll on their self-esteem. And children who have undiagnosed vision problems or learning disabilities often do show reduced self-esteem if those things are not addressed because they are struggling in school. So it's really important um, to, to assess what are the possible reasons this, this child may be exhibiting anxiety, may be exhibiting um, uh, fatigue, and irritability. Mental health comorbidities, including depression in rheumatoid arthritis, interact with the disease process, including dysregulation of inflammatory responses, prolonged difficulties with pain and fatigue, and the development of cognitive and behavioral responses that exacerbate the physical and psychological difficulties. Okay, so let's break that down. When you've got somebody, whether it's juvenile arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis, that is struggling with mental health issues, anxiety, stress, anger, depression, you know, a lot of those feelings that people go through when they are symptomatic, when they get diagnosed with something, when they have strong dysphoric emotions, remember that triggers the HPA axis, that triggers cortisol, that also triggers inflammatory processes. So their mood can actually serve in some ways as a trigger to exacerbate the 
inflammation. And yes, it is a vicious cycle. So as their inflammation gets worse, their pain and their fatigue and their irritability and things get worse. And it, it, it can be a vicious downward cycle, which is why it's so important that we help people develop skills for distress tolerance, skills for cognitive restructuring, instead of seeing this as the end of the world, instead of focusing on the negative, focusing on the positive, developing hardiness and resilience skills. All of, of those are going to be really important because as in, inflammation goes up, as HPA activation goes up, pain threshold actually goes down. So what wouldn't have caused pain six months ago may be painful now because the pain threshold has gone down. And they're experiencing more fatigue. More pain equals worse sleep. Worse sleep equals more fatigue. Think about putting yourself in their head. You know, let's just empathize with this person for a second. You know, I don't blame them for being frustrated and irritable and angry. And especially a child who doesn't understand. They're like, what gives? Uh, I can totally get kind of where they, where they are in their mind, which can lead to the development of cognitive and behavioral responses that make the physical and mental health issues worse. They can start developing negative self-talk, distress intolerance, and other things, you know, noticing the negative, a negative attitude, which may contribute to their perception of the world as a stressful place, increase their stress, and decrease some of their coping behavior. Another trigger they found for arthritis, um, well, rheumatoid arthritis and juvenile arthritis is obesity. Most studies found that obese patients had worse tender joint counts, infl inflammation, global evaluation scores, pain scores, and worse physical functioning during follow-up. Now, I want you to remember that dietary and emotional factors don't cause juvenile arthritis. You know, something else caused that to happen. But what can trigger a, a flare-up can be diet. It can be emotions. It can be obesity. So let's talk for a minute about smoking. Now, you're thinking, well, we're talking about juveniles. They don't smoke. No, but they can be exposed to smoke. Smoking in adults increases the severity of rheumatoid arthritis symptoms. Maternal smoking during pregnancy increases the risk of rheumatoid arthritis in the person, in the, in the child, um, and later adult. Um, so it's important to recognize that, you know, if the child or the fetus was exposed in utero, that does significantly enhance the risk that they will develop um, rheumatoid arthritis later in life. Secondhand smoke. Now, you know, a lot of y'all may be of the age where smoking was outlawed everywhere in public places when you really started going there. When I grew up, that wasn't the case. Um, people smoked in houses, people smoked in restaurants, people smoked everywhere. So there was a lot of secondhand smoke. Uh, the point being, secondhand smoke, you know, if, you know, mom and dad are smoking in the car with junior, it increases the risk of the development of juvenile idiopathic arthritis and rheumatoid arthritis. Another interesting little study that is out there just to kind of give you an idea of the impact of smoking. Among women who never smoked at all in their life, exposure to secondhand smoke during their childhood was associated with a 43% higher risk of developing rheumatoid arthritis. This is one of those health literacy things that, you know, we can promote to parents, that we can um, promote to people to let them know that, you know, secondhand smoke is really 
bad mojo for the children that are breathing it. But, you know, we're not necessarily going to ever be able to change someone's behavior if they don't want to. Other triggers, chronic stress, depression, and interestingly enough, gum disease are associated with increased inflammation. Now, we've talked about chronic stress and and depression. We know that um, when we're stressed, when that HPA axis is activated, that ultimately down in the system, the there is a, a secretion of inflammatory cytokines. The purpose of that is to send those inflammatory cytokines to areas where they where where there may be injury to promote healing. So the system itself, you know, makes sense. But when someone is chronically stressed and they've chronically got these inflammatory cytokines going through their body, and that can lead to a lot of problems, including leaky gut as well as depressive symptoms. They found strong association between systemic inflammation and how do they determine that? Well, number one, talk to patients. And number two, there are blood tests that can measure the levels of certain inflammatory cytokines to identify if there is an elevated level, it indicates there is systemic inflammation. So these studies are, are you know, pretty on point for what we're talking about. But gum disease, now let's think about that. Uh, gum disease, obviously, is when your gums are inflamed. Well, they hypothesize that the inflammation in the gums may obviously has caused the release of inflammatory cytokines. And some of that bacteria, because the gums are broken and inflamed and bleeding, some of that bacteria gets into the blood system and can actually trigger an increase in systemic inflammation, which can trigger an episode of arthritis. Increased inflammation, regardless of the source, is associated with the worsening of juvenile arthritis as well as rheumatoid arthritis symptoms and an increase in pain intensity. Well, think about when you've been hurt. You know, when something is really, really swollen, it probably hurts a lot more. You know, even if it hasn't been long standing and going on long enough for your pain threshold to, to reduce, the worse the inflammation, the more pressure there is on that area, likely the more painful it will be. Increases in systemic inflammation as seen in most autoimmune diseases, including juvenile and rheumatoid arthritis, are associated with increased depression and oxidative stress. Okay, we've talked about depression, but let's talk about oxidative stress for a second. Oxidative stress occurs when just to simplify it, when because of processes in the body, there's a lot of um, waste products going on. Um, what addresses oxidative stress? Antioxidants. What else is associated with oxidative stress? The development, way later in life, of dementia and Alzheimer's. So it is important for whether you're talking about preventing autoimmune issues or preventing late-life cognitive decline, whatever, it is important to help people address oxidative stress because it does have a significant impact on our mood and on our cognitive abilities as well as on our physical function. So what do we do for treatment? Most juvenile idiopathic arthritis patients need to attend adult rheumatology centers. It's important to make sure that people know that even if they haven't had an episode in, you know, five years, you know, there may be a time where it starts to flare up again to be on alert for that and to go to a rheumatology center if they start having a flare up in order to start mitigating it early on. Now, from what I read, 
and obviously I'm not a rheumatologist, but from everything I read, since there is no guarantee of going from juvenile rheumatoid arthritis to adult rheumatoid arthritis, they don't just automatically put somebody on um, preventative courses of medication. The medications that are out there for autoimmune disorders like psoriasis and rheumatoid arthritis are kind of hard on the system and they do have side effects. So it's not just like, you know, you can take a vitamin and, you know, magically that's going to prevent it. But there are really good courses of treatment out there to reduce pain and improve quality of life should that become an issue. The primary goal of treatment for all forms of arthritis are to eliminate the active disease. It doesn't mean we're going to get rid of the rheumatoid arthritis. If somebody has that going on, they're going to have that kind of in their system. But we want to reduce the frequency of flare-ups. We want to eliminate the active stage, the flare-up um, phases, as much as possible. We want to help them normalize joint function. You know, if you can't close your hand enough to open a jar or you can't close your hand enough to, you know, scrub your own hair, and it... It works on other joints besides just hands. For some people, it affects their spine. Now think about how awful, how painful that is when your spine is regularly painful to you and you don't have good range of motion for sitting and standing and doing those sorts of things. So normalizing joint function, that is obviously something that is mainly going to be done by a medical doctor and a physical therapist, but physical therapy and recreational therapy, sometimes occupational therapy, depending on the joints affected, are going to be super useful um, to the client, especially during the first flare-up so they can learn what they need to do and how to prevent future flare-ups. We also want to preserve normal growth. In juvenile arthritis, interestingly enough, the inflammation in those joints can affect the growth plates at the end of some of their bones and impact normal growth. So we really want to help people work to reduce the flare-ups so they can reduce the joint damage, so they can reduce the potential impact on growth. For juvenile and rheumatoid arthritis, Another goal is to prevent long-term damage. There may be times when your joints are sore. And, you know, I've talked, told you guys before, sometimes I can tell when we've got a cold front coming in or a bad rainstorm because my arthritis starts acting up. You know, having these transient little aches isn't going to do a lot of joint damage. But long-term inflammation, long-term inflammation of the of the joints can cause joint damage, which is, again, a reason we want to help people prevent flare-ups when possible, and part of that is going to be um, helping them manage their stress and helping them manage their health behaviors to prevent flare-ups. And then when flare-ups do happen, we want to help them tamp it down as quickly as possible. We do want to support independent self-management. And these last four were really interesting. It was a study that was done by um, uh, on youth that had juvenile arthritis. And the areas that came out were the fact that a lot of these youth wanted to learn how to cope with their arthritis. You know, they were eager. They were optimistic. They felt, you know, like they could be empowered, but they didn't have the skills and knowledge to manage it. They wanted to do it, but they didn't know what to do. So the first two areas that came out were to work with families 
to support independent self-management. A lot of times, especially if the disorder started occurring when the child was very, very young, parents may be extremely protective of the child, not wanting them to get hurt, not wanting them to do anything that may cause a flare-up. And the child can feel very smothered or empowered because of this. So it's important to work with the family to encourage them to give the child or the youth responsibility to a certain extent for managing their condition. You know, let's empower them to do this. And a part of that is also helping them acquire the skills and knowledge to manage their arthritis. You know, if they started having episodes when they were four, obviously they didn't have the skills or the ability to manage it on their own. So the parent probably figured out what helped, what didn't help, and has a very clear idea in their mind about what need be done. At a certain point, we need to encourage the parent to say, all right, you know, you're old enough. Let me pass some of this knowledge on to you and let me help you figure out what to do in order to manage, um, in, in order to manage your, your condition. Jerusha asks if uh, the anxiety of worrying if their pain will begin um, or come back fuels depression. And yes, in, in some people with arthritis, the worrying about the next flare-up can cause a certain amount of depression. What the research seems to say is for juveniles, for juvenile arthritis, is they are relieved and so happy and elated when they wake up and it doesn't happen overnight, but when they wake up and they're feeling a little bit better that they don't forecast like that. It's us adults who start thinking about, oh, well, wait till the next time this happens. We do want to make sure parents aren't communicating that message that you've got to live very, very cautiously because otherwise you're going to be in lots and lots of pain. We want to help them figure out how to navigate that boundary where they can be kids, where they can have fun, where they can experience life and do it without triggering a, an episode. A child who's not able to be a kid is likely going to experience some depression and anxiety, which may increase their symptoms. You know, we want to encourage them to do what they can within recommended limits. You know, obviously we're working with the multidisciplinary team. So we want to encourage to recognize that their children, especially their, their you know, their tweens and, and their teens, are capable of starting to conduct independent self-management. Just like, you know, if the child had juvenile onset diabetes, you know, they may have a, a pump implanted and they've got to monitor their blood sugar. They have to be responsible for independent self-management. Same sort of thing goes when we're talking about juvenile arthritis. Helping them keep a, a log, you know, a lot of kids don't want a journal, so that's fine. Helping them keep a log of what they're doing to identify if there's anything going on that might trigger a flare-up. Are they anxious? You know, some kids, especially, oh my gosh, when it comes time for state testing. Um, I used to work in the school system, and when it would come time for that state test, whatever it's called in, in your state, children would just be overwhelmed with stress. I, I had a couple of children that during the test would pull out their eyebrow hairs. Um, that's how bad the stress got. So we do want to look for things that may be coming up, help the youth and the family forecast things that may be coming up that might 
promote stress, that might promote distress, which could cause a flare-up. So they can intervene early. They can develop a plan for how they're going to deal with it. They can work on positive self-talk. We need to educate the patient, the significant others, and the community about the unique challenges of juvenile arthritis as well as rheumatoid arthritis. We need to help people recognize that it exists and it can be really painful, but it doesn't mean, you know, it's not contagious. It doesn't mean that somebody is super fragile. Um, so what is it that we can do? How can we help? A lot of people want to help. They want to be able to support someone who is, you know, having a flare-up, who is having pain, but they don't know what to do. So we do need to be able to, you know, provide handouts to parents, provide handouts to teachers. If you do an in-service in a school, let them know that, you know, one of the things that's really important for all of the autoimmune issues, as well as, you know, a host of mental health issues, is to help kids practice mindfulness so they're aware of how they're feeling before it gets out of control. Help the kids learn distress tolerance skills so when they get stressed, they don't go from zero to 250 and stay pegged out. Help them figure out resources that they can tap into if they're feeling overwhelmed, like the school counselor, so they can better manage their, their stress levels and their mental health. And we want to increase inclusion and social support for youth with juvenile arthritis through face-to-face -face and online intervention. Now, youth with juvenile arthritis, we want to encourage them to participate in, you know, regular activities. But... For a proportion of them, and, you know, maybe a larger proportion, it didn't really say in the research, it is also helpful to additionally have connections with other children, other adolescents who also have this same issue. So they, so it normalizes what's going on. They don't feel like they are broken. They don't feel like something is bad about them. So that is an important thing, and I have resources at the end of the presentation that you can refer to in order to, you know, provide more information to families, parents, etc. As I said earlier, one of the wonderful things is that the psychosocial adjustment of youth with juvenile arthritis is very similar to that of non-affected youth. And just like most other youth, their psychosocial adjustment is impacted by physical factors. If they're not getting enough sleep, that is going to activate the HPA axis, which is going to increase inflammation. It's going to increase irritability. It's going to increase difficulty concentrating, which may lead to struggling at school, which can negatively impact self-esteem. You see how it can kind of build on itself. Sleep is so important. And that's one of those things that is relatively easy to do. Now, when you're talking about a tween or a teen, there's always that fight about going to bed because they don't want to go to bed at 7.30. Um, and it, it's important for middle schoolers and high schoolers to still get at least eight hours, but preferably nine to ten hours of sleep per night. So if they have to be up at five in the morning to get ready for school or to be at the bus stop at six, you know, they're going to have to go to bed a little bit earlier on school nights than maybe they want to. It is important to communicate to them the importance of sleep. Fatigue. Is separate from sleep. There can be fatigue associated with not getting enough quality sleep. And, you know, 
to that end with sleep we want to educate them increase their health literacy about sleep hygiene and there's lots of videos on you know the youtube channel at all ceus education about sleep hygiene so i'm not going to go into that right now but you know we want to make sure they're getting enough sleep and that's not the reason the other causes of the fatigue that are related to the pain and the autoimmune issue well we may not be able to do a whole lot about that so we want to talk with the youth and ask them when you're fatigued what is harder to do and what can you do to deal with that so maybe when they're fatigued it's harder to you know get through and stay focused in class they may not be falling asleep but they have a hard time getting motivated and staying focused when they're fatigued it may be harder to get motivated to do homework so we want to talk about the things that are more difficult when they're feeling fatiguey and develop plans to help them do what they need to do for example homework one of the things that works well with children and, and adults even who are experiencing significant fatigue is to chunk things instead of doing two hours of homework do 15 minutes of homework and then take a rest and then do 15 more minutes of homework and then take a rest yes it drags it out a little bit but if they're doing two hours straight they're probably really still only focusing for the first 15 minutes and the last hour and 45 minutes is extremely inefficient so working with them to identify what can help them another thing with fatigue is a lot of times it gets worse as the day goes on encouraging them to do things in the morning do things early in the day so they have a little bit more energy to focus and do what they need to do it is important to make sure that the youth don't start using this fatigue issue as an excuse to get out of doing everything you know i'm too tired to fill in the blank so we do want to make sure that you know if they're too tired to do their chores or to do their homework then they're also too tired to go out and go to the park or whatever it is and that you know that is important because a lot of tweens and, and teens are very observant and they may try to push that boundary a little bit but for the most part fatigue you know i want to focus on the fact that for patients with juvenile arthritis and rheumatoid arthritis fatigue is real and most of the time it is very real for them and we want to take it seriously and help them figure out how to live their highest quality of life despite being fatigued and let me tell you you know i'll just put it out there hyperdosing on caffeine is not it caffeine triggers that hpa axis gets things revved up again and actually an increase inflammation so living on caffeine to counteract fatigue is not the answer nutrition is important and this will come from their doctor or from a registered dietitian but nutrition is important especially the antioxidants to help combat that oxidative stress and omega-3s omega-3s have been found really helpful to reduce pain and inflammation we cannot prescribe diets for people they need to get that from someone who is licensed to do that but we do know and we want to impart to them that nutrition plays a big part and and amy points out that sugar for some people may also um, be problematic for causing more pain i know it causes more fatigue so we do want to look at helping youth recognize the importance of health maintenance and health promotion activities to prevent flare-ups of their juvenile arthritis gut health 
is another one that is super important because guess what? A lot of our neurotransmitters and chemicals in our body that are designed to combat pain and give us energy are synthesized in our gut. So if you have a unhealthy gut, then the chances are you may not have the right balance of neurotransmitters to effectively manage your pain and manage your mood. You can read more, as always, all of the hyperlinks in here go to uh, journal articles that talk about you know, these specific issues. Gut health, usually, as long as the person is eating a healthy diet and drinking enough water, you know, that usually will stimulate gut health. You know, ideally cutting out highly processed foods has been found to improve gut health, but we're looking at things that people can do and sustain. So unless their doctor or their dietitian starts recommending, you know, probiotics and this and that and the other, they may not need that. They may just need to eat healthfully to promote gut health. Now, let's also think about stress. When you get stressed, what happens to most of our guts? Most of our guts start running overtime when we're stressed because that HPA axis is activated. So stress can actually impair gut health. Circadian rhythms are super important because that helps with uh, mood as well as energy, as well as stabilizing cortisol levels and helping us get quality sleep. Pain management, we want to work with people. Even if they don't have juvenile arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis, we still want to help people recognize what are some things I can do when I'm in pain besides popping a pill. Um, and there is a time and a place for pharmacological pain management, and that's between the client and their physician. But there are other things like stretching, um, relaxation, massage, hot and cold packs. You know, there are a lot of different things and, and um, meditation and guided imagery that are very effective at assisting with pain management. And medication side effects are another thing that we want to talk about with patients in general, um, not just people with arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis. There are a lot of medications, including things like statins, which are taken for cholesterol and blood pressure medication that actually do have some relatively significant side effects as far as, or can have some side effects as, as far as mood is concerned. We want to recognize all of the medications and herbs someone is taking and figure out, you know, are there any side effects? You can go on drug, um, drugs.com, I believe it is. I always have to Google it and find the link, but and you can, they, they have a side effect checker for medications, and they also have a drug interaction checker on that website, which can be really helpful because you can go through it with clients and say, you know, when you started taking this medication, did you notice a change in and, and identify it? Obviously, we're not going to tell them to stop taking a medication. We're going, but if they are experiencing side effects, it helps them and a lot of times to understand where it's coming from. And we can also advocate for them to go back and talk to their physician and say, you know what, this is really not working for me. Is there another medication I can take if it's that bad? And hormones, especially when we're talking about juvenile arthritis, unfortunately, you know, juveniles, because they are developing, have hormones that are all over the place. And alterations in hormone levels can have significant effects not only on mood, but on pain threshold. So hormone fluctuation can also cause or contribute to a flare-up. We want them in their log to be noting that if they need to. 
obviously girls may have an easier way, easier time, you know, noting changes in hormone levels uh, based on certain physical symptoms than guys do. But if you notice that there are fluctuations, you know, that's something that can give you a clue that, you know, for youth, for example, for female youth who de develop um, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, obviously dysphoric is in, in the, in the uh, diagnosis term. So that tells you that it's probably going to contribute to stress, which may trigger or may be likely to trigger a uh, flare-up of the arthritis if it's not handled um, effectively, if they don't have the skills to deal with it effectively. Affectively, we know that mood impacts their physical well-being, so we want to help youth identify not only coping skills and distress tolerance skills to help them deal with unpleasant things, but, and this, you know, so many people, adults and don't even think about it, we want to add good things. You know, if you're adding fun things in your life, if you're adding happiness into your life, then you're naturally kind of forcing your body to squeeze out some of those positive chemicals. So adding positive things in your life is going to be really important. Cognitively, we can teach psychological flexibility, help them identify how, what a rich and meaningful life looks like to them and how to make the best conscious decision on how to use their energy to move toward that rich and meaningful life. And that's all acceptance and commitment therapy-based stuff, but it can be very helpful. Encourage them to have realistic perce perceptions. Expecting to never have pain isn't realistic for anybody. You know, every adolescent that I've ever known has occasionally had pain, especially when they're going through growth spurts. Every adult that I've known has occasionally had pain, and it can be for a variety of reasons. It doesn't mean that the sky is falling. So they need to be realistic and recognize that some days they're going to be a little more dis uncomfortable than others. Living in the and is another concept that comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. And we practice the mantra a lot in my practice, um, when you have something like arthritis that may, especially rheumatoid arthritis that, you know, older, that adults get and tend to have, you know, for the rest of their lives, um, recognizing that they can live in the end, even during a flare-up, they can have a rich and meaningful life and also be having a flare-up. It doesn't, just because they're having a flare-up doesn't mean that their life has to stop. Hardiness and resiliency are two other very broad umbrella terms for things that we can encourage youth to develop. Hardiness, if you remember, uh, Kobasa back in, I believe it was 71, proposed this theory that we want to encourage people to recognize that there are a lot of things in our life that we are committed to, that are important to us. And just because, you know, maybe I'm having a flare-up right now, so I can't play in the tennis match this weekend. Okay. You know, that sucks. But I have all these other things going on in my life that are also important to me that are going well. So encouraging them to look at the big picture is a huge part of hardiness. Environmentally, you know, it just comes down to having people reduce their stress triggers, whatever that is for them. Noise, light, um, noise, noise and sound are the same thing. Noise, light, temperature, anything that adds stress to their life. If they've got, in my house, I've told you all before, we've got four dogs and wood floors. So it sounds like louder than anybody's business uh, when the UPS man comes to the door. 
And it used to drive me crazy because we have one of those transoms next to the door that's, you know, just a glass transom. And every time the dog saw anything, they would lose their stuffing and they'd start going crazy and I'd jump out of my skin and it, it was just constant. And it was frustrating and exa exasperating and exhausting. So what did I do? I put a curtain up and now they don't hardly bark, you know, except for if somebody actually knocks on the door. And that's reduced my stress in my environment because I don't have those episodic, you know, jump out of my skin moment. We want to encourage youth to figure out what can you do in your environment. Now, it may be, you know, relationships with their siblings. It may be um, out sitting, you know, the, the chair they're sitting in at their desk. We want to consider all of their senses, you know, sight, smell, sound, taste, um, and help them design an environment that is as relaxing as possible. And finally, relational. Uh, supportive friends and fam family uh, are really important to resilience and happiness for, you know, everybody, not just people with juvenile arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis. We want to help them identify you know, friends and family, identify what they can do to support the youth who has juvenile arthritis to encourage resilience as opposed to discouraging risk-taking or discouraging them from being kids. Medications work by suppressing the immune system to prevent it from attacking the joints. Okay, well, if the body is naturally attacking the joints, it's got its wires crossed, then that's a problem. To prevent joint damage, we need to prevent it from attacking the joints. One of the first lines are your immunosuppressives. Uh, unfortunately, just like it sounds, take your immune system and you suppress it, that means you're more at risk of infection. Think about how many colds kids and things kids usually get, um, even when they have a, an active immune system. When you start suppressing the immune system, then, you know, when they go to school and they're around all the other kids, they're snotting and sneezing and whatever, they are at higher risk. So that is a problem or can be a problem. can be managed, but it can be a problem. Corticosteroids are another immunosuppressive that is sometimes used. Unfortunately, uh, steroids do increase anxiety in some youth. And long-term use is really hard on the body. Another group of medications that's out there are biologics, which target tumor necrosis factors, or TNFs. And TNFs are cytokines that promote inflammation. So these biologics actually go in and find these inflammatory cytokines and shut them down. Sounds great. TNF antagonists, or your biologics, are associated, interestingly enough, and it makes sense, with reductions in depression and insomnia. So as we reduce inflammation, we reduce depression. Well, we already talked about the fact that increased inflammation is associated with increased depression, so it makes sense. Reduce depression, reduce inflammation, reduce depression. And when depression and inflammation are reduced, a lot of times the HPA axis is less activated, so it's easier for people to get quality sleep. Unfortunately, the TNFs, the biologics, are also associated with the development of a certain type of rare white blood cell cancer in adolescence. Like I said, none of these are a panacea. It's not one of those things that you can say there's no side effects. There's side effects to just about everything. It's a matter of weighing the odds. I could not find in the article or in any of the articles on the biologics what percentage of people 
that take the biologics do develop this cancer. They say it's rare. So my assumption is that it is pretty rare in the, even in the youth who do take it to develop this cancer. But, you know, it's important to know that it is one of those possible side effects. Interventions. Exercise is the key to reducing the symptoms of arthritis and maintaining a range of motion. According to the CDC, you want to use SMART guidelines. We are going to leave this to the medical professionals, but it's important to know so we can support youth in this process. SMART stands for start low and go slow. You know, start by walking down the street and back. And then if that doesn't bother you, maybe the next day walk around the block. Modify activities when symptoms increase, but try to stay active. Activities should be joint friendly. You don't want to be running or doing high impact aerobics. You know, swimming, bicycling, things that are joint friendly are going to be more helpful. Recognize safe places and safe ways to be active. What Encourage the youth to identify places where they feel physically and emotionally safe and encourage them to talk to a health professional or certified exercise specialist to identify things that they can do that are helpful to their recovery. Federal and state programs may provide assistance with school accommodations or services. The rheumatologist will have a list of those. And consult again with the rheumatologist about support groups and camps for kids with juvenile arthritis. The Arthritis Foundation, Healthy Joints Matter, CDC recommendations, there, there are a lot of resources here as well as the Childhood Arthritis and Rheumatology Research Alliance or CARA. So there are a lot of resources that we do have available to give to families. What's really important is as mental health providers, you know, mental health is one of those triggers for flare-ups. So if we can help people develop good, healthy habits to prevent distress, to excess distress, we're always going to have a little distress, to prevent excess distress, to prevent, you know, clinical issues, then we are going to reduce the chances of flare-up or at least reduce that risk factor. We can also provide youth tools and knowledge for cognitive and interpersonal and, and physical ways, things that they can improve their health, improve their happiness, and mitigate flare-ups when they do occur. And Jerusha points out that some of the psychotropic meds do cause fatigue in a lot of people. Um, some of the antidepressants, definitely the antipsychotics, will cause fatigue. So if you have a patient who is already taking, you know, a medication, again, look for the side effects um, and how it's impacting that particular client and encourage them to advocate for themselves with their physician or get a release signed so you can have a you know, team conference. Are there any questions? If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.